Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. With political discourse on television dominated by bombast, fact-twisting, and outrageous personal attacks, it's easy to dismiss every bit of it as a worthless sideshow. But one of the rare voices worth listening to is George Will. He won a Pulitzer in 1977 for his political commentary, much of which was critical of President Nixon. He has a column in both The Washington Post and Newsweek, and he's been a regular panelist on ABC's This Week on Sunday Mornings since 1981. While politically conservative, he's not afraid to direct his criticism to the right and extend dinner invitations to the left. George Will's passion for all things political started early. Well, I, the first election I remember was Dewey Truman in forty. Uh, eight. I was, I guess, seven years old. So and you remember it how and why? Well, I just remember the static on the radio, the stuff about it going on. Another chair you pull up with the adults. Exactly. In 1952, I remember Taft was running for the Republican nomination against Eisenhower, speaking in Champaign, Illinois, and I went to see that. I remember Estes Kefauver, Tennessee senator, who was running for first in 52 and again in 56. Uh, in 56 when he became Stevenson's running mate at the convention when Stevenson threw the convention open to pick the vice president. So I saw a few of these national candidates and got interested. His career in political journalism started 40 years ago when he was hired to be editor of the National Review. Over the years, he's established himself as a consistent and respected voice in American political life. George Will's also a baseball writer and a passionate fan. Can't remember life without it. And growing up in central Illinois on the Illinois Central Railroad, the main line of mid-America, as it was called, taking trains to Chicago, I sort of fixated on Chicago. And this was pre-television, so baseball was literally in the air. There were two teams in Chicago and two in St. Louis. The St. Louis Browns were there. St. Louis was the westernmost outpost of baseball. And I just got hooked on the radio, the voice of it all. It was my connection to metropolitan America, if you will. Sports, and particularly it meant baseball then, because of its rich sediment of numbers, was one of the first things a young person could peg up with adults on. 
That is, you could know as much about Jimmy Fox as your father did. Will's book, Men at Work, The Craft of Baseball, was a New York Times bestseller. But back to politics, namely the presidential election, about which Will has no shortage of opinions. He considers the number of debates during the recent Republican primary season excessive. When I spoke with him earlier this year, he told me the primaries were just a mess, and he says the current race is far from over. I certainly do not think this is a slam dunk for either side. Can I give you a little background? In Democrat or Republican side? Either side. In the Senate or the White House or both? White House. Let's start with that. In 2008, Barack Obama had all the wind at his back, everything going for him. He was an African-American at a time when the country was eager to do that. The Republicans had, in the view of many of us, pretty much disgraced themselves at home and abroad for eight years. They nominated an implausible 72-year-old warrior and a really implausible running mate. The country was in economic meltdown. Just everything was going wrong. Obama had been two years out of the Illinois state legislature. He was a Rorschach test for the nation. You could project whatever you wanted onto him as a fairly unknown candidate. He could be all things to all people. Still... He got 52.8% of the vote. Question. Democratic Party is the oldest political party in the world. How many Democratic candidates in the history of that party have got more than 53% of the vote? The answer is only three. Andrew Jackson, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. The Republicans, a younger party, have had 10 candidates get over 53%, which means that in 2012, Obama's probably going to get less than 52.8% of the vote. Why do you think that Democrats have a harder time getting above 53%? I don't know. I have uh, an opinion. Uh, tell it. Well, because they're, they're typically, very often, when they're at their best, and both sides, I want to focus on them at their best, the Democrats are asking people to vote against their own interests very often. Whereas the Republicans are asking people to vote for their interests, for, which is an easier stone to push up the hill, I think. Slightly tendentious presentation. <laughs> when, when, was, when was the last time the Democrats asked the United Auto Workers to vote against their interests? Oh, no, no, the, When's they, the they, last they, time they asked the teachers' unions to vote against their interests? I should think it's exactly the reverse. The Democratic problem in addressing the country is that it is so much a mosaic of vested interests that the Democratic Party has become, in my judgment— a paladin of reactionary liberalism, that whatever is should always be only bigger. Well, when I look at the, you know what are considered liberal policies, democratic policies, progressive policies, I think to myself, well, at least there was an effort by them, albeit sometimes a, an ill-conceived one, to solve a real problem. Do you think that these people are not really trying to solve a problem? That they just to try to— The Democrats? Right. Sometimes they're trying to solve problems. Sometimes the problem they're trying to solve is the— unslaked appetite of an interest group. Right. You think Obama has a chance to win? Sure. You do? Yeah. What do you think Romney's biggest problem is? People don't warm to him. They don't dislike him, Mm -hmm. but they don't like him. That's different and in some ways more deadly because if people don't like you, it's because you've said something or stand for something and you can always persuade them or change your position. You judo that into something else. Right. If they just don't cotton to you. It's, it's hard to... They don't repeal. really think about you at all. Well, it's hard to repeal chemistry. Right. And what do you think is going to be Obama's biggest battle in the election? I think the sense that he's Jimmy Carter, amiable, decent, well-meaning, and out of his depth. You know, there's an old saying in Washington, at least, that overnight's a long time and a week is forever in American politics. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard the last from Spain we haven't heard the last from uh, various economic difficulties. 
if the economy stalls, which it easily could do, sure. uh, who knows? Right. You mentioned earlier about the mess of the uh, Republican primary season and what happened. And I was joking with some friends how I thought that to some extent— uh, the only thing Obama needs to do when he runs against Romney is show clips of all the things that Gingrich said about Romney during the primary period, and he might be halfway there. Well, except being criticized by Newt Gingrich is not necessarily a problem. Right. Uh, but in my lifetime, this was normally the realm of the Democrats, the circular firing squad, and the Republicans in my lifetime were never like that. I mean, the Republicans, they fell in line and supported the, the nominee. What happened, do you think? This time around? Well, first of all, the varsity didn't show up. The best players didn't, the Mitch Daniels and others, Jeb Bush. And so you had people who were trying to establish a kind of status and purchase on the electorate that they didn't bring to the party. To become stars, if you to will. To become stars. And we had this lunatic proliferation of debates. When a baseball team, 30 baseball teams go to spring training, they know Every one of them is going to win 60 games. Every one of them is going to lose 60 games. You play the whole damn season to sort out 42 games. It's a little bit that way in politics. The Republicans are going to vote Republican, particularly in this polarized climate. The Democrats are going to vote Democratic. We're really going to be fighting this fall all this money and time and energy over 12 percent of the electorate. I think I watched you on uh, Colbert. And you said that parties were, you quoted whoever it was, you quoted where parties were uh, systems by which we organize our hates and our Henry, Henry Adams. Henry, Henry Adams. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah. But do you think most people that's that's true? Do you no. think, that, for example, I vote the way I vote because I'm voting against someone as opposed to for someone else? You're voting against someone else but not hatred. The American people are really not haters. Uh, we're big boys and girls. We've been doing this a long time. We're the most experienced democracy. We understand that people have different political sensibilities. Those people cluster. We call the clusters parties. We fight it out. Big deal. But when you say that people, there's not a hatred involved, would you agree that in your lifetime, in your career, you've seen that it's reached a kind of an ugly time now in terms of media, meaning especially in the conservative media where, liberal too, because I mean, obviously, Olbermann and there's a whole MSNBC crowd, which seems to have been wanting to mimic their counterparts over at Fox. But do, do you see that the rhetoric has changed over the last several years in your yeah, career? Yeah, somewhat, although I mean, it, used to, it used to be Republicans against Republicans. My first vote for president was in the Goldwater election. I was a cheerful Goldwaterite. In fact, I will... Is it a, is it a button you're going to give me? No, no, but no, our listeners can't... I didn't bring a Teddy Kennedy button Our listeners can't see this, but anyway, I've got a, a Goldwater uh, button is the wallpaper on my cell phone. And some of us never forget. But again, a little perspective. In the 1790s, in the, the great election of 1800... The Adamsites said, if Jefferson's elected, they will confiscate the Bibles and women will not be safe on the streets. The Jeffersonians said, if Adams is elected, we will have a monarchy installed in this country and will be subservient to France. In the 1850s, Preston Brooks of South Carolina, congressman, goes on the Senate floor, accompanied by an aide holding a gun to hold off the other senators on the Senate floor, used his cane to beat Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts so severely he was out of the Senate for three years. People of South Carolina were so approving of this, they inundated his office with new canes. <laughs> We've been through really violent times, mm -hmm. and, and we're in one of those periods now, and um, it will burn over. But in your profession, 
in the political professional class, uh, the punditocracy, whatever you want to call it. Now we have a whole network, which is very, very tilted in one direction. Did did you see that coming? You have two whole networks. Well, look, 30 years ago, CNN was founded in 81, I think. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, at the dinner hour in this country, 80% of all television sets in use were turned to Cronkite, Chancellor, and Peter Jennings. Today, we have this cornucopia of news sources. People define journalism on their own terms, get it on their own time. I was told by an activist in South Carolina during the primary this year that a survey showed that 72% of all Republican primary voters in South Carolina get all, not most, all of their news from Fox News. Mm-hmm. When a Republican candidate buys an ad on Fox News, he's not broadcasting, he's narrowcasting mm-hmm. right into Republican voters. Mm-hmm. Now, in a way... This, too, is a reversion. When the party system developed in the 1790s and early 1800s, American newspapers were largely factional papers. Some of them were paid by the parties. So we may look back upon the, some would say, the pretense of objective journalism or nonpartisan journalism as an episode, a parenthesis in our national history. But it's the latest incarnation of something. Yes, have you ever been approached by some of those folks? I would imagine that they would have been dying Fox and Ailes for you to come work for them. Did you? No, no I know. They Rod, never approached you? I know, and like Roger Ailes and Brett Hume and these people are friends of mine. No, I've been with this one show on ABC for 31 years. Right. And there was never an attempt by anyone to try to poach you no, to no. enhance their credentials? No, no, no. no. To have a truly sober voice in, in, among that crowd? Oh, they've got sober voices. Got look, I mean, look, Brett Both Bear, sides, too, Brett, by the way. Brett yeah. Bear's 6 o'clock news program on Fox is as good as it gets. Right. What do you think about those labels? If you had to, how would you prefer to be labeled? Not a conservative. Like a conservative. Sure. To you, that's defined by what today? Limited government. Limited government. The Madisonian project that we shall have a government of dual sovereignty, national and state, And that the national government shall be, as he said in Federalist 45, the proposed constitution. These were Federalist papers, were newspaper columns Mm -hmm. advocating ratification of the constitution. The powers granted to the federal government by the proposed constitution are few and definite. This is the argument in the Supreme Court over the health care plan. That is, if the Commerce Clause is so elastic that it can accommodate the action of mandating the purchase of health care, then... We really do not have any longer the Madisonian vision of a government of limited, delegated, and enumerated powers. But do you think that the way that those uh, powers have shifted, and do you think that the way that the government has and its role in our society has evolved over the last 200-something years, do you think that some of that has to do with the fact that it was an agrarian society that was fueled to a large degree by slave labor over 200 years ago? Uh, obviously, a change in the role of the central government was inevitable. But you can accommodate a lot of changes in the central government without uh, undoing the principle of limited government and enumerated powers. If you could pick three things that are policy issues right now that you really think need to be changed, that's what's best for the country, what do you think that they would be? What, what areas would they be? First of all, I'd strike down the mandate and with it the entire health care plan right. because I think it, it doubles down on all that's wrong with the health care system. Second, uh, I would deregulate American politics. McCain, Feingold, and all the rest have made a perfect mess of things. Why do you think that is? They've set out to do something flagrantly unconstitutional. Which, which is? Uh, ration the quantity 
limit the content and dictate the uh, quantity of, of timing of political So Citizens speech. United, you approved of that oh, decision? Oh, of course. Certainly. Really? Oh, absolutely. The funny thing about Citizens United is some of the people who most vociferously dislike it are so enraged they haven't had time to read it. New York Times editorially said what Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas uh, casino mogul, has been doing and contributing money, 15, at least $15 million to the super PAC supporting Newt Gingrich, is an example of what Citizens United has done to our politics. What Sheldon Adelson is doing has nothing to do with Citizens United. What he's been doing has been done in America since George Washington's day and has been a constitutional right since Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. But what, what do you think campaign finance reform regulation was an attempt to address? Do you think that it just, was just drawn out of thin air or do you think that there was a, a real problem? I'm going to shock you by telling you where I think it really began. Where? It wasn't Watergate. It wasn't? No. It was 1968. Gene McCarthy set out to challenge Lyndon Johnson. You know how he did it? He couldn't do it today because it's illegal. He got about 11 wealthy liberals to give him what in those days was serious money, $100,000 a piece or something. And with this large liberal money, he mounted a campaign. Democrats were so horrified by this disruption of their party's presidential selection that they began, because of Gene McCarthy, an attempt to make it more difficult for that to happen. Uh, I think you can put the entire necessary and constitutional regulation of campaign finance in seven words. No cash, full disclosure, no foreign money. So transparency is something that you're not opposed to? Not opposed to. What do you think about about public financing? Uh, (laughs) I can just guess, but go ahead. Uh, I'm just teeing up the ball here. (laughs) Food stamps for politicians. I I, I don't. I'm not. I disagree. It is the most regularly and... accurately polled issue in our country because every April 15th when people f- complete their tax returns, Americans vote on this. There's a little box they can check sure. and they can give three bucks, I think right. it now is, to fund politics. It doesn't increase their tax liability at all right. and 90-some percent of the American people refuse to do sure. it. Well, it's, it's, it's the one act of tax defiance that they can exhibit well, perhaps when they're filling, especially when they're filling out that form at that time of year. But anyway, it's not going to happen. You know, this is an issue I've spent a lot of time uh, working on and, uh, you know, to me, the the problem that exists that led to the, the recent culture of campaign finances is we just have lousy people running for office. A lot of people don't want to run because they don't want to raise money. It's gone from one full day. Now my friends tell me that in all honesty, it's two. They spend 40% of the work week raising money. I'll solve that problem in 10 minutes. Repeal the limits on giving. They're raising money in these little dribs and drabs. And you don't think there's a quid pro quo attached to that fundraising? I do not think that corruption or the appearance thereof should be addressed that way. Let them take $100,000 from anyone. Let them take $100,000 from Philip Morris. Put it on the internet at the close of business every day. Let the journalists wallow around in it. Let the country make up its mind. The problem— So you're saying the transparency is more the issue. The the transparency is at most the issue. What I'm saying is this. The lion's share of political money goes to disseminate political speech. Therefore, as Justice William Douglas said, a liberal icon on the Supreme Court, 
to regulate political spending is to regulate the quantity of political speech. We're constantly hearing from the political reformers there's too much money in politics. There's no other way to translate that and saying there's too much political speech. I disagree. Money is not all-powerful. You know who the great money raisers have been on politics in the last 50 years? The really exciting ones, George Wallace and Barry Goldwater. And they did it with small contributions. This country is awash in money. They said earlier this year, it turns out probably not true, but they said, you know, Barack Obama and the Republicans might each raise a billion dollars this year. Gosh. Every year in March and April, the American people spend $2 billion on Easter candy. This country's swimming in money. That's not a lot of money. But at least with the money that's spent on Easter candy, they're getting their money's worth. In my judgment, the most remarkable fact is how little money we spend on politics, considering the stakes, the trillions of dollars influenced by political decisions. We spend remarkably little. Including money that's spent on lobbying? No, that's different. I'm talking about the, the political, the, the electoral politics. No, we spend much more money on lobbying. Sure. And, and sensibly so. Right. Why sensibly so? Well, as, as you know, it's a, lobbying is one of the few professions. I'm in one, journalism. Uh, clergy is a th- second. And lobbying is the third profession protected by the First Amendment. It's called petitioning for redress of grievance. It's uh, pressuring the government. That's a good thing to do. You said that earlier that the people who showed up this year were not the stars— in the Republican primary period. And you mentioned Mitch Daniels was one who you were, were you hopeful Daniels was going to get in the race, even just in terms of pure interest, not in terms of your own uh, favoring him as a candidate? I was for him. He was your candidate. At about 11 o'clock at night on Saturday, May 21st, as I recall, I got a call at home from him. Both uh, Mari, my wife, and I are old friends of his, and he says, I'm not going to go. And at that point, I decided I didn't have a dog in this fight. And what about Jeb Bush? Well, you know, if his name were Jeb Smith, it'd be a different matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, once you've had Bush, Clinton, Bush— You believe, in, you, you believe he'd be a worthy candidate, Bush? Yes. If, even if, he were, if oh, his name were Jeb Smith? Certainly. Why? Based on what? Uh, first of all, his tremendous accomplishments with, with particular regard to primary and secondary education in the state of Florida. He's just a grown-up, sober— Happy, cheerful politician. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you look back on his on his brother's presidency now? The eight years he was in office. Well, I'm not a compassionate conservative. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> do you think he was for limited government? Can't no, certainly not. That's what irked you. Well, he said at one point, "When somebody hurts, government has to act." No, not really. Certainly not the federal government. Uh, the grafting on a new entitlement onto Medicare, the prescription drug entitlement, the first entitlement we've ever had with no dedicated funding, just threw it out there and said, we'll pay for it somehow. He campaigned in 2000, promising a more humble foreign policy. That didn't work out so well. When you say, I mean, I had a friend of mine once explain to me in so many words, and this is many years ago, so I might not get this verbatim, but... He articulated a kind of a libertarian view, which I think sounds similar to yours. And his take was that the mantra of the Republican Party was, I'm a winner and I just don't want you to ruin my party. You know what I mean? I want to be able to put my feet up at the end of the after 18 holes at the clubhouse and I want to enjoy myself. Do you believe that in our society that people 
the federal government is an attempt to address, to give something to the losers, if you will, to placate them, to... (laughs) The welfare state, Alec, is a huge regressive transfer of wealth from the working young and middle-aged to the retired elderly in the form of pensions and medical care. And because the elderly, after a lifetime of accumulation, are the wealthiest cohort in the country, the welfare state is a regressive transfer of wealth. The idea that the welfare state exists primarily to help the poor is refuted by a cursory reading of the federal budget. I believe— The transfer goes to the elderly. Sure. The transfer goes to the organized, most muscular interests. Big government is big because it has big ambitions. It knows how wealth and opportunity ought to be allocated. Big government is therefore inevitably responsive to big, powerful interest groups. I subscribe to what the poet Robert Frost said. He said, I do not want to live in a homogenized society. I want the cream to rise. Certainly, you do not want an egalitarian society dictated that, that regardless of your ability to add value yeah, to everybody the Everybody gets a trophy. Yeah, it's, it's like soccer for eight-year-olds. Right. You showed up, give them a trophy. Is there anything about the health care bill that you like or the, or, the, or the spirit of it that you like? Uh, nothing about the nothing. spirit. But uh, I'm, I'm sure in 2,700 pages, it would be the law of averages. He had to get something right. What do you think is the proper way to address the health care crisis? How would you recommend we would solve that problem of health insurance for Americans? The amazing thing to me is that John McCain got it right in 2008. I say that's amazing because John is not interested in domestic policy. Right. If it doesn't fly or explode, he doesn't care. But— John McCain said, look, tax all employer-provided health insurance as what it obviously is, compensation, but give people a large tax credit to go into a national market, I'll come back to that in a minute, and shop for health care among competing approved plans. That is basically what all federal employees have, including Barack Obama. That's how, that's how we do it with federal employees. National market is crucial. You know, turn on your television. You're going to see State Farm auto insurance competing with Progressive auto insurance, competing with uh, Allstate auto insurance, competing with Geico auto insurance. I can see that with health care insurance. Why? Because we are not allowed to buy health care insurance across state lines which is so dumb even a caveman can understand. Right. I mean, just, Why is that? Because the state legislatures like to keep this captive industry so that when the acupuncture lobby comes to Springfield, Illinois, and says, we will show our gratitude to you if you will just put, make it mandatory that acupuncture has to be covered in our uh, in the state plan. Give us some of that insurance, man. Sure. So the plans get more and more comprehensive and lavish, and people are forced to buy things they don't want to buy, acupuncture coverage. Yeah. Therapeutic nail trimming. And up, 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 up goes the cost of health insurance. Uh, let's have a market and competition. So they want to just have like a close, each state wants to be a closed shop. They, each state is, is a, a closed, closed shop. Is a closed yeah. shop. Even though you said you're not a compassionate conservative, what's something you think Obama could do you think he has it in him to do. You, you, you might even be doubtful about it, but what's something you think you hope Obama will do in a second term if he gets elected? He may come to his senses in your, in your ideology about. Well, this is not coming to his senses, but something he's uniquely qualified to do. He's an African-American. He's an exemplary husband and father and family man. The immeasurably biggest tragedy in American life today 
is that 74% of African-American children are born to mothers without husbands. We know the whole range of social pathologies that accompany this, particularly a large, constantly renewed cohort of unparented adolescent males, meaning chaotic neighborhoods, schools that can't teach, all the rest. I would like to see Barack Obama address that. And his he, community that he can't his community that he could I mean it's not his his community is the American community I mean, he's, he's president, he's all of but our his roots in the, yes, in the inner by, city by I mean because he uh, one of the most the greatest things about American life today in 2012 is the the picture of the Obama family is, is, that, is that something that's especially deeply held to you about family and about uh, Pat Moynihan was um, at the time of his death uh, probably my best friend. Mm -hmm. Pat, in 1965, brought down upon his head a rain of acid abuse and accusations of racism because he then, he was an assistant secretary of labor in the Johnson administration, published a book on the crisis in the Negro family. He said there is today a crisis in the Negro family because the out-of-wedlock birth rate is, I think it was 24 percent, 74 today. For American society as a whole, it's 33 percent. 60% of children of all races and ethnicities, 60% born to women under 25, born to single women. Family disintegration is at the heart of most of our problems. You think that's a result of what? Feminism? No one knows. Right. No. No one knows what, what it is. Because it's happened in Wales. It's happened all over the sure. world. No one knows what it is. Everywhere where there's contraception. No, it's not just, it's not, mm. no one knows. Right. And, and anyone who thinks they do hasn't looked at the problem. Right. I, I live in a time, and I've lived in a time where I never dreamed Obama would beat Hillary Clinton. Never. And, and, and it's interesting in those comments you made on the television show I watched where you said that uh, the Clintons have lost a lot of their, uh, their allure and everything. At that time, I just couldn't conceive that Hillary would lose the nomination. I really, really thought she was going to win. And I think I told George Stephanopoulos in March 2007, March 2007, said, Barack Obama will be nominated and elected. I just could not see the country saying we're nostalgic for the Clinton years, which right. they weren't. Right, they weren't. Well, what do you think her political future is? Zero. Zero. She's Pretty not going to There's a whole generation of coming candidates. Andrew. Andrew Cuomo in New York, uh, Governor O'Malley in Maryland, countless people. And Paul Ryan, all kinds of good people out there, governors, the rest. What do you think Gingrich's future is? No, it's, books it's, and no, yeah, it's it's over. Books and it's talking over. on TV and commentating, talking. <laughs> he, he does lots of that. Right. You you mentioned in one conversation you had that you thought that Bill Buckley was the most consequential journalist of the 20th century. Did you have a personal relationship with him? Yes, uh, he was a friend. Describe him. A good, well, yeah, he, you were friends with. How did you meet him? When I was a college professor at the University of Toronto, I wrote a few things for National Review. Then I went to work in Washington for a senator from Colorado, Gordon Allen, 70 through 73. Uh, you moved to Washington when? 70, 1970. And, and why? To work on the Senate staff what? from the University of Toronto. As 72 dawned, I decided three years was enough. I wanted to go into journalism, so I picked up the phone and I called Bill and I said, you need a Washington editor of National Review. And Bill said, essentially, you're right, I do, and you're it. He hired people like that. Right. I, uh, Gary Wills, Joan Didion, people like that, and me and others who just struck his fancy and he, he hired them. He was good at that. I started work for National Review the week 
Sirica's sentence caused James McCord to crack and the Watergate thing began to unravel. So here I was, the Washington editor of the flagship conservative publication, and I was quite convinced that Nixon was guilty and was going to have to go. And it was really hard on National Review. Bill was a wonderful editor. And, and, and Did Bill agree that Nixon had to go? Well, well I'll tell you, st- to I'll tell you a go story. Ahead. No, no, no. Uh, Bill's brother, Senator Buckley, as he then was, Jim Buckley, mm-hmm. was the first to call for Nixon to resign, the first of the, the Republican Senate contingent. But uh, we were meeting down in the National Review offices on 35th Street, and Bill was at one end of the table and I was at the other, and he said, George, uh, what's going to happen? And I said, uh, Nixon's guilty and the system works. And Bill flashed that electric Jack Nicholson smile and said, uh, I think he's guilty and the system doesn't work. Why? No, why? <laughs> why? Well, he just meant that he'd get away with it. But uh, he Carl didn't. Bernstein said in a, in, a, in a thing we were talking about, I did a program with him. And Carl said that Watergate was the last time, quote unquote, the system worked in this country because both sides of the aisle worked together to try to restore the uh, dignity of the presidency. And it was Republicans and Democrats who both were seeking the truth and thus as a result of that thought that Nixon had to go. I think the system works more often than people think. It doesn't work in a tidy and pretty way, but no one ever said democracy is— Do you think it worked during Iran-Contra? Yeah, as a matter of fact, sure so. well, they stopped it. Uh, it, it was uh, revealed. It was investigated. Uh, God knows it was investigated to death by congressional committees, by independent councils. But do you councils. think that people, both, both sides, I don't want to accuse one side or the other, other of this. Do you think that both sides, because I look at the whole world I've grown up in as a pre-Watergate, post-Watergate world. And you would not want to know how Franklin Roosevelt used the FBI and how Franklin Roosevelt used the IRS to punish enemies and people like that. Well, no, I'm sure that and, they and all do. That's right. They did. They don't do it anymore. I mean, the, the, the mm-hmm. system is much more... Policed and self-policing. No, I, I, I believe that's true. So, Buck, so Buckley said the system didn't work. No, Buckley was the—I uh, cost National Review a lot of trouble because National Review then, as now, relied, as small magazines generally do, New Republic, on, on contributions to keep it going. And National Review would analyze its mail, and the memo had a category called subscription cancellations and George Will because they were the same thing. I was making people mad. Bill never once, not— once tried to restrain what I said about Nixon. He was a wonderful guy and, and uh, tremendously fair. When you look back on Nixon now, what do you think of him? It'll be 40 years next year he resigned. Next year. Next year. We're getting old. <laughs> yeah. You can say that again. <laughs> the, uh, Nixon was... Uh, you don't want someone in politics who doesn't enjoy it. He was so miscast for a profession that is 98% making small talk with strangers. They have to kind of like it. And Nixon was an unhappy man in the profession. You want happy people in politics? Uh, uh, when did the television thing, from, from Buckley, when did the television thing begin? Almost immediately. Start? I started uh, uh, with National Review in 73, and I started a syndicated column in 74, and I started doing television on a regular basis. How did that happen? Who approached you? Uh, the Post-Newsweek stations, they owned five owned and operated stations at that time. Who owned the Post then? The uh, Grahams? Catherine Graham. Do you think that you're being so uh, even-handed with Nixon is what had Catherine Graham want to hire you for a television show? No, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, I left the Senate staff to become a writer at the end of 72. And Agnew was crashing around the country, mow-mowing the press about being too liberal. And... The press was responding by desperately seeking conservative columnists. And Bill Sapphire left the White House, 
And Sapphire, Will, and Pat Buchanan, another White House guy, all started columns at the same time. The Post, Washington Post and the New York Times competed for Sapphire. The Post lost and settled for me. That's how it, that's ex- exactly what and happened. And you started with them then? Yeah, 1973. You still enjoy TV? Yeah, it's, as you know, television is survival of the briefest, and it's, uh, it's inherently unsatisfying. I mean, you like a, writing better? A, oh, much more, yeah, it's... Wonderful pleasure, tactile pleasure, putting together a nice paragraph. So do you have a—I mean, when I think I mean, you'll help clear up this image, I have an image of an office of yours with a gigantic cork board, <laughs> and there's about 250 post-its on it with different ideas. I mean, you must have just a limitless, bottomless number Absolutely. of ideas for columns you want to write. I actually, I, I have in my pocket—this is not suitable for radio, but I have always a list in my wallet of the next columns I want to write. I have about a dozen the now. The pots that are on the stove now. When I started writing, I asked Bill Buckley the question that I now know is the most commonly asked question of a columnist, which is, how do you come up with ideas of things to write about? Bill said, the world irritates me three times a week. <laughs> I would simply say the world irritates or amuses or piques my curiosity. Who do you read in the paper, mag- you know, in, in print, uh, radio, listen to, and watch on TV? I don't listen to radio. Why? Because when I'm in my car, I'm listening to books, audio books, always. I listen to audio books. I've got my little smartphone here. I have right. 20, 20 books on here I'm listening right. to right now, a biography. It was coming up to, to the studio, I was listening to a biography of President Monroe. Television, I watch... Uh, you know, if it isn't on ESPN, I'm apt to miss it. I go in the morning, turn on the Major League Baseball Network at 7.30 and turn it off when I leave. Uh, I read my good friend Charles Krauthammer. Bob Samuelson writes about economics for the you Post. read the Post every day. Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Yeah, all the newspapers. Yeah. In print, not in, online. God, no. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, all my friends laugh. I want to tear it up and file yeah. it. When you're not working, what do you do? Go to baseball games. You're a Nationals fan. No, I'm a Cub fan. You're, you're a Cub fan. Ugh, yeah. Hurts but, to but say by so. By proximity, you're there at a Nationals game. Yeah, and I, I have a handicapped son works in the clubhouse of the Nationals. Who right does now. he? Yeah. How old is your son? 40. Now, you have how many children? Four. And and you have been married? Uh, twice. Twice. And you're how many kids with your first wife? Uh, three. And you have one child with your yep. second wife? Yep. He's a sophomore in college. So I've been dying to ask George Will this question. What's your advice to me on my second marriage? Well, you know, it's the, the definition of second marriage is the triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> or as I say to people, even people from the deep south visit Grant's tomb every now and then. You know, we've well, got to put the past behind us. Yeah, love's more wonderful the second time around. Now, all so. the great American songbook, uh, so, the great American songbook contains all the philosophy anyone needs. Yeah, maybe you're right. George Will. The Washington Journalism Review named him best writer any subject. After talking with Will, one question stayed in my mind. Hello? Hello? Yes. So I called him up. So my question for you is, your um, political philosophy, if you will, makes me think that uh, you believe that people will do the right thing if left alone without government interference, without government regulation that you trust that people will do the right thing if left to their own devices. Do you still feel that way? Uh, Not exactly. Universal free public education, the requirement to send children to schools of some sort, indicates a powerful belief entertained by the Enlightenment founders of our country that people need to be schooled in the virtues necessary for a free society. 
farsightedness, discipline, all of that. So the more freedom you have, the more care you need to take in nurturing people suitable for it. I do believe that the American people have fairly sturdy virtues and that uh, left to their own devices, which is to say left to make voluntary arrangements and transactions with other free people, will more often than not, A, do the right thing, or B, do better than any alternative arrangement for advancing society. I lost the bet. (laughs) What what was the bet? My bet was I would ask you, if left to their own devices, would people do the right thing? And you would simply say, yes, and hang up the phone. (laughs) No, not that simple. (laughs) This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.